a form of abandonment, plain and simple. Rehoming allows those who may not have the best intentions to gain custody of a child completely unregulated and unfettered by, by law. Hello, and welcome to Briefly, a production by the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Kyra Cooper, and today we will be discussing the unregulated custody transfer of adoptees, a practice commonly referred to as rehoming. When adoptive parents rehome a child, they give their legally adopted child away to another individual or family to raise without the oversight of the government or child welfare authorities. In 2020, YouTube influencer Micah Stoffer announced that her family had decided to rehome her then five-year-old son. Stoffer had adopted her son from China three years earlier and subsequently documented his adoption and adaptation to her family as a focal point of her channel. Now, three years later, Stoffer professed to her YouTube following that her family was ill-equipped to raise a child with developmental disabilities and had decided to give their son away to another family. This incident received widespread criticism and raised major concerns. How could adoptive parents give their child away to strangers? Based on this uproar, the authorities verified the child's well-being in his new home. But unfortunately, not all children end up in a safe home. And despite worrying incidents like this, only a few states have prohibited rehoming. To discuss the practice of rehoming, I'm very excited to introduce our guest for today, Professor Cynthia Hawkins. Professor Hawkins teaches family law, with a specialty in adoption law, at Stetson University College of Law in Tampa Bay, Florida. She has written several books on adoption, including one entitled Mastering Adoption Law and Policy. Professor Hawkins, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's particularly exciting since November is National Adoption Month. Oh, wonderful. Happy National Adoption Month. So to kick things off, let's take a broad look at adoption in the United States. What does the legal system around adoption look like? Okay. As with U.S. family law in general, domestic adoption law is state-driven. And then, of course, judicial approval is required for finalization. Within that or overarching to that state structure is federal, our federal laws controlling adoption. Those are few and far between. The states continue with their laws on on adoption, but the major focus of the federal laws is placement of and funding for foster children that are in the child welfare system to eventually find a permanent placement. DHHS monitors the welfare system and reporting is required. As far as adoption in 2019, uh, there were a little over 122,000 children that were waiting to be adopted. And of those, 71,000 were legal orphans where they'd been orphaned, mostly orphaned via the legal processes within TPR. The average time in care for the, those waiting to be adopted was about 30 months. Okay, so for the families seeking to adopt these children, what information might they receive prior to the adoption in both a domestic and international context? So the information they receive varies because the pre-adoptive parents 
route that they choose uh, towards adoption. So the public system from foster care, the private system via a private adoption agency, which is licensed, that category would be where the parents, the pre-adoptive parents would receive hope, probably the most information because for private adoptions, the, the focus is infants pretty much. And although the latest statistics show that I believe it's 0.5% of live births end in adoption recently, that's very recent um, figure. So yes, the most information they would probably receive would be from private adoptions. There are files. Now, sometimes there are holes in the files. And I'll talk a little bit more about some of the legislation that's been proposed to, to try to cover those holes. And then independent adoption. Now, private adoption is is with using a a private adoption agency. Independent adoption is where one, and this is much less regulated, where an attorney or a representative without uh, an agency facilitates an adoption from the birth mother to the adoptive parents. So some would say that's partially where some of the domestic adoption problems arise because with an adoption agency, the backgrounds of the birth parents for the most part have been vastly researched. For example, if there's a birth father, making sure we get consent and those kind of issues. So, yeah, so I would say that the the most information they would get would be through private. And then in inter-country adoption, so those are the three areas of domestic adoption, and inter-country adoption where the child comes from another country where they are usually unrelated. Let's focus in on inter-country adoptions. Could you speak to how this process works and how it interacts with existing guidance? When we talk about intercountry adoption. Even today, the U.S. intercountry adoption accounts for about 50% of all worldwide intercountry adoptions. So we are 50%. Whatever it is, we're 50% of it, basically. Now, the numbers have dropped quite a bit. In 2019, uh, intercountry adoptions, according to the State Department, were Uh, about 2,970. In 2020, uh, that plummeted to uh, only 1,600. And that's due to the COVID restrictions, probably, Um, because a lot of adoptions, uh, all adoptions were interrupted at that point, you know, stopped at that point because of the restrictions by the COVID pandemic. And intercountry adoption, the process has to comply with the federal law, the international law, Hague, the laws of the adoptive parent state and the prospective adoptive child's country of origin. So there's a huge, you know, for the hundred, for the hundred countries that have are signatories to the Hague Convention, that's more routinized. But for those that have not, although there have been attempts to to and, and legislation uh, enacted in the U.S. to apply the Hague Convention requirements to non 
signatory countries. And so, you know, it's really uh, if they have if the country hasn't adopted the Hague, then there's then that becomes uh, problematic. Just to just to for information's sake, um, the most children that are adopted internationally in the U.S. come from China, uh, followed by the Congo and uh, then the Ukraine. Although, you know, through the uh, intercountry adoption that the Hague Convention uh, applies and there are some, you know, there are 100 signatories um, to, to the Hague Convention, um, as far as getting the health, health and life history information, um, that is difficult. The information that the the, the parents may not receive <laughs> in intercountry adoption uh, leads to disruption problems. The Department of State and the USCIS are the two responsible federal agencies. Now, one of the reasons many experts find that intercountry adoption has slowed quite a bit recently is that the Department of State has adopted a policy that Intercountry adoption should be a, an option when first it's in the best interest of the child and the adoptive parents have considered domestic adoption. And in addition to that, placement options in the child's home country should be exhausted first. So not only should the adoptive parents consider that's not a that's not a given amount, but consider domestic adoption and also more exhaustively the all the avenues for in-country adoption should be exhausted before trying to place the child and that's called the principle of subsidiarity and it's in the child's best interest to remain in their in with their birth family or extended family and then prioritize those domestic placements before inter-country adoption is considered. So that has really lessened the overall practice of international and intercountry adoption and definitely lessening the availability of infants. But now the convention and the Hague involves six central steps and you are the adoptive parents must complete those steps in order so that they reach meet the legal requirements. For example, choose a U.S. accredited or approved adoption service provider. They've got to be approved. You've got to be Hague approved. And those are called ASPs. Uh, apply to the immigration service to be found suitable and eligible to adopt. So the U.S. citizen service has to, has to find you suitable. Be matched with a child by authorities in the child's country of origin. Hopefully, uh, at least the State Department hopes that this is after all domestic, those foreign domestic avenues have been exhausted. And then apply to immigration service for the child then to be found eligible for immigration into the United States get provisional approval, get adopt or gain legal custody of the child in the child's country of origin, right? That's after you've gotten the provisional approval from the U.S. And then get your uh, visa for the child and bring your child home. But once you get home, and this is the seventh step that I added, there are further requirements for U.S. finalization. 
And that's particularly true if it's a non-Hague Convention signatory. So that was, you know, then the Hague was adopt, implemented in the U.S. by the Intercountry Adoption Act. So we really have tried to make it a much safer process, a much more rigorous and straightforward process to bring the children here. However, once they are adopted in here, all that falls apart. Since this topic concerns adopted children, it may be important to parse out if any legal protections exist for biological children that don't exist for adopted children. Does the law treat biological children and adopted children differently? Yeah, the... I guess when, you, when we're talking about protection from abuse once adopted, no, it's the same process. It's the same protection. They're not, there are no legislated differences for protecting adopted versus biological children from abuse. However, when we're talking about rehoming your child, right, as far as your biological child being rehomed, there is a process, and, and this would apply to those adopted internationally uh, as well to relinquish custody. However, when we talk about rehoming, those parents have decided to go outside of any process, any legislated process at all. And so it's really, it's really problematic there. Now, as far as general protections, once a child is adopted, The child is, for all legal and social reasons, the child of its parents. Now, inter-country adoption, there are provisions in the Hague mandating post-adoption reporting, and that varies somewhat, but the legal status of the child has changed. The child is the child of their adoptive parents. So, for example, adoptees don't naturally inherit, don't, don't inherit intestate from their birth parents because they're not their, no longer their legal parents. So that's why personally I'm always troubled by a parent introducing a child with, oh, and Sally here is my adopted daughter. That to me feels so divisive and so contrary to the entire purpose of adoption. Even if the child is obviously not their biological child, in my mind, it makes adoption a stigma uh, where it really, really should not be. And whether the child is concerned about that or not, as far as the public is concerned, it seems to stigmatize uh, adoption. Now, I'd like to look specifically at the practice of rehoming an adopted child. What does it mean when a parent rehomes a child? It's a form of abandonment, plain and simple. And all states penalize abandonment to some degree. Rehoming allows those who may not have the best intentions to gain custody of a child completely unregulated and unfettered by by law. And the reports have have been horrendous uh, regarding the results, sex trafficking, abuse, neglect of children who have been rehomed. And the, you know, the other unsettling aspect of this is that the term rehoming, if you just put in rehoming in a Google search, 
you will find animal placement. This was placement of your sad little pet. My dog had 10 puppies. Do you want one? And so some now prefer the term unregulated custody transfer. Personally, I think we should just call it rehoming because it is, it's the specter that, that seems to give it more legitimacy when you give it the, 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 the moniker of unregulated custody transfer. It sounds like it's, it's, it's not so bad. Um, rehoming really calls it what it is, abandonment. And it, it appears as though, now remember, there's not a lot of data on this. Um, it's very difficult to find data. Um, you can, there's some on the, on the Department of State's website where they're trying to make some in, information available, but there's very little. And I'm not sure if that's because they don't want to recognize it or they don't want to encourage it. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, it appears as though children adopted through intercountry adoption uh, are at a greater risk for, for rehoming. Um, and what rehoming is uh, when a, an adoptive parent, and this is apply, the term rehoming applies to it in adoption. We don't talk about rehoming our biological children. Um, we would have to go through the child welfare system and term it, have our rights terminated in that sort of way. So we are, when you use the term rehoming, you're only talking about uh, adoptive parents. Uh, and that's when they informally, without involving the child welfare system or anyone else <laughs> uh, or the courts, um, place their child in a home person to person other than theirs um, with the intention of permanently transferring custody. And we're not talking about necessarily um, placing them with a family member, with one of the adoptive parents' family members, extended family. We're talking about strangers. Um, and this uh, unregulated transfer um, puts the child at risk of abuse, uh, neglect, uh, and, and sex trafficking. Uh, and because of this, some states have tried to um, prevent it. Um, the one statistic I found, 70% of rehomings are within intercountry adoptions. The stats are really hard uh, to, to, to find. In 2019, eight uh, international adoptions were reported as disrupted. But remember, that's sort of beginning of COVID. The reporting may not be great, but understand that there were 20, in 2018, there were 104. So it's hard to understand why there would be such a reduction in one year when nothing as far as international law has changed. But the, the real, you know, we know about disruptions, but as far as the rehomings, we're not 100% sure. So in these instances of rehoming that do take place, why might an adoptive parent find a new home for their child? So this is, you, you have to keep in mind that children adopted via intercountry process and, and somewhat some of these issues apply to children in the child welfare system, but nearly certainly any inter international adoptee suffered severe trauma. U.S. adoptees have, have also suffered. One of the most common difficulties is what's called reactive attachment disorder or RAD. And it's a rare but serious condition where an infant or young child doesn't establish healthy uh, attachments with parents or caregivers. 
And this can occur. And it doesn't mean that if you don't parent your child yourself, you know, care for your child, your young baby yourself, that they're going to get attachment disorder. They're going to have uh, the symptoms of attachment disorder. It's that they, they have to have some sort of consistent caring and loving care. And it may develop if the child's basic needs for comfort, affection, and nurturing aren't met and loving, caring, stable attachments are not with other people are not established. That's the quasi medical um, uh, definition there. And some research, it's not conclusive, but some research suggests that some children and teenagers with RAD display callous, unemotional traits that can include behavior problems and cruelty towards people or animals. And if you notice in some of these, some of these reports online, why a child is being rehomed, there's often the fear of harm or the instance of harm to family members or, or pets. Remember, the vast majority of children that are, are adopted internationally are, were housed in orphanages. Nothing like group homes in the U.S., just worlds below. <laughs> there are some known medical special needs, but even more importantly are the unreported or even unknown shorter long-term health and particularly developmental issues. And then again, there's that lack of health and life history information that I, I alluded to earlier. And sometimes the, they may be part of a sibling group and have been taken from that sibling group. And that really, that really creates even more trauma. And, and understand too, that the only official means for parents of internationally adopted children is to have their children readopted uh, through private adoption. And that's unless they go through the public, the foster care system and relinquish their rights in that way. So, and that can be very costly, of course, to try to place your child through private adoption. Another issue that seems to be relevant is that there, there are only 10 hours of pre-placement training required for internationally, international pre-adoptive parents. There are 30 hours required for domestic pre-adoptive parents. So there's that difference. Post-placement intervention services are highly recommended, but very difficult, even more difficult to obtain by parents who adopted internationally. It's more difficult because they're not part of the U.S. system. And so to just show up at the government uh, social services or at a private agency and say, I need help, puts them at a real disadvantage. So that, that really most needed post-placement intervention services aren't as available. And so that's a recipe for disaster. Some adoptive parents just give up. And, and even after a really short period of time, despite the, the years and years of process that they've endured, it seems as though that's at some point the, the last straw, so to speak, to get the child home finally and then be faced with all of these unexpected difficulties. Although they should have been expected, but they are <laughs> unexpected. So if adoptive parents have decided to rehome their child, how do they even go about placing their child with another family? Yeah, um, so in 2013, Reuters um, 
released a, a really appalling, so appalling it's difficult to get through all five parts. It's just unbelievably upsetting. Um, so the, the, the Reuters report really started snowball of information. Uh, and so, um, yeah, they, it seems that even despite the fact that Yahoo, the known Yahoo groups and known Facebook groups were shuttered, um, it's certain that other chat groups exist. There are avenues available through the internet where parents who want to rehome their child are doing so. And parents and people who may not be good people, as we're discussed, or, or people that should have children, uh, as, as really um, illustrated in the, in the Reuters report, are trolling for children. And they know that the children can be received without any sort of governmental involvement or regulation or anything. And so when they, uh, you know, when they, they put their child on the internet, the only thing that's needed is a, is a power of attorney. It's, you know, no home study, none of the, the arduous uh, steps that they took for uh, international intercountry adoption and none of the arduous steps that are required for domestic adoption. It's just a handover. What exactly is the power of attorney? Oh, yeah. Powers of attorney are allowed for custody transfers in probably every state. But the intention is that that power of attorney handing over the rights to parent your child are meant to be temporary. And so this is not meant to be a a long-term answer to your difficulties. And 28 states have actually legislated that POAs are to be temporary. They're only to be used when the parent can't care for the child. And 19 states actually set specific time limits for the powers of attorney. And those statutes, of course, all emphasize that the intention is that the duration of a power of attorney would be short term. Let's pivot to the protections that are available for children who have been rehomed. Are there any legal safeguards in place? Yeah, um, 18 states, and this is as of 2020, I believe, 18 states have made rehoming a crime of some form. Uh, Eight states actually prohibit the practice of rehoming. Some of those states, you know, the 28 states that you can you can sort of include the 28 states that hold that the POAs are to be temporary seem to are, are prohibiting the practice of rehoming, which is meant to be permanent. 13 states are, you know, this is really it, it's it's an up and down uh, reporting system because, you know, some some have reported that 18 states rehoming is a crime and it's hard to find all of this legislation. Some have said that it's really only uh, 13 states. So somewhere between 13 and 18 states. Now, how are these children transferred via advertising or how are they how are they notified? So four states have specifically banned advertisement for children. 
eight states haven't banned it, but they specifically require that the advertising only be by the government, the child welfare system, social services, or a licensed adoption agency. So those, those quote, quote, advertisements you might see, of like the Heart Gallery and other Adopt Kids U.S., is those are okay because those are, are legally sanctioned. It's also been re- re- reported that 10 states have specifically said that advertising is a crime. Now, query whether those four states that ban advertising is, are included within that 10 or not. <laughs> but it's really, you know, doing this research, it's difficult to, to get a hold on, put a real finger on uh, what the statistics are. Have there been any instances of a court holding adoptive parents accountable for the harm that has come to children they've rehomed? Those are few and far between because rehoming is, is quote, illegal, unquote, in so few jurisdictions, you would have to bring the parent within some other criminal law. So abandonment, abuse, neglect would have to be the vehicle to charge a parent in the majority of cases. So a fair share of these state-by-state enactments come from states reacting to terrible local instances of rehoming, like the widespread outrage that surrounded the Stauffer family rehoming their son. But why haven't these negative instances of rehoming had a larger impact across states? Well, there are issues with that because the ICPC, Interstate Compact on the Placement of Children, doesn't really apply to rehoming. And one of the issues and and one of the solutions would be that we try to add provisions to the ICPC that would help with stopping the rehoming. But, but ICPC only applies when we're talking about across state lines. It's the interstate compact on the placement of children. So interstate. So if they, and all 50 states um, have not enacted that, it was a federal law uh, and it has been enacted by all 50 states. Um, so it does have an impact on the, on the adoption of children. In theory, it should affect and regulate rehoming. It's a contract amongst the 50 states and U.S. territories that works to ensure that children placed or adopted across state lines receive adequate care and services. But the ICPC doesn't cover those that occur within the same state. And also, it only applies to, quote, quote, official adoptions. So there would need to be an amendment to the ICPC to purposefully apply it to instances of rehoming to make that really helpful. You know, in theory, it should affect and regulate rehoming, but it doesn't because these are undercover, uh, unregulated placements. So that's a problem. There's not a federal law right now that really apply to rehoming. We just have these state-by-state enactments. Can you tell us about any legislation that has been enacted against this practice? At this point, remember, um, 
there are dissolutions within domestic adoptions. And they don't usually end up with uh, a rehoming situation. What usually happens with children in the U.S. where there's a disruption is that they run away. And so the, for example, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000 and subsequent reauthorizations is the federal law that protects victims. So annually, there are about 300,000 children at risk of falling into trafficking. For example, in 2014, 10,000 children were reported missing. And one in six of those children who were reported missing became victims of child sex trafficking. And 68% of the 10,000 were in social services care when they ran away. So we can see that rehoming for children who are in international placements may be an issue or a place where children fall through the cracks, but they also fall through the cracks by running away when they're within social services care. And so that's another issue that's on tap here. You know, I do have some good news. The House recently passed, just in, I believe, March of this year, scapped a a Stronger Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act. It cleared the House by a whopping 345 to 73 opposed vote. It is the uh, legislative overhaul of the bill uh, addressing child welfare, which is CAPTA in the U.S., and there are some reporting standards that will be required. DHHS would uh, establish national standards for tracking and reporting child fatalities, along with near fatalities as a result of maltreatment, and it will be the first federal law to explicitly address the process of unregulated custody transfers or rehoming. Um, And if you'd like, I can, it's a little bit in depth, but they do provide, and now this is not law, it's uh, in the Senate now, hopefully to be passed, was on its way to being passed pre-COVID, then COVID occurred, and then now there's some politicking that's not related to this. So hopefully it will pass, but It defines unregulated custody transfer as follows. And I'll read this to you because it's really interesting. Uh, And it's really a real step forward. The term ACT means the abandonment of a child by the child's parent, legal guardian, or a person or entity acting on behalf and with the consent of such parent or guardian. By placing a child with a person who is not the child's parent, step-parent, grandparent, adult sibling, legal guardian, or other adult relative. So out of family placements. If they're not a friend of the family who is an adult and with whom the child is familiar, so you can't just palm them off to some friend of the family or a member of the federally recognized Indian tribe, uh, which the child is a member. So they don't want to interfere at all with Indian Child Welfare Act. And you're placing them with the intent of severing the relationship between the child and the parent or guardian of such child, and without reasonably ensuring the safety of the child and permanency of the placement of the child, including by conducting an official home study, very important, background check, even more important, and supervision. 
in transferring the legal rights and responsibility of parenthood or guardianship under applicable federal and state law. So in addition to that language, GAPTA will require DHHS to provide a report on unregulated custody transfer. And you have to include measures for preventing, identifying, and responding to unregulated custody transfers, including that of adopted children. And so there's more language about the report itself. And so the SCAPTA is also going to require guidance and technical assistance to states relating to preventing, identifying, and responding to unregulated custody transfers. Now, still, there's, there's, there's a lot of follow-up legislation within the states and policies within the states to try to enact this, but it's really, once it's passed and, and actually implemented and adopted by the states, this is going to federally address the rehoming issue. Now, I don't know what will happen in the Senate, but if this is able to, to, to pass, it will really go a long way in preventing this unregulated blight for children in the U.S. Wow, that sounds like a really encouraging development. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, this is going to take years. (laughs) I do have some other places where we might be able to attack this problem namely through adding provisions in the trafficking laws. Also, again, having ICPC address the rehoming issue, tie that in somehow so that that can be a more of a, of a state-by-state requirement to address, to, to try to focus the ICPC on, because that's already been adopted by all 50 states. So if this doesn't pass, uh, or, and even if it does, really tweaking ICPC to include or at least reference the new legislation will, will really make, it, make a big difference. And, you know, this flurry of legislative activity by states that occurred in 2013 really waned. You know, 2014, 2015, there were some statutes, uh, legislative matters uh, passed in, in various states. But since then, nothing has occurred. And, but thank goodness that SCAPTA has, has been passed by the House. And, you know, it may not close all loopholes, but it takes a huge step uh, forward. And also, more needs to be written <clears throat> about rehoming. If you do a, a search uh, regarding legal scholarly articles on rehoming, it, it doesn't come rise to the attention of the academy. And that's really important. Well, Professor Hawkins, thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me today. It was a pleasure to be on Briefly. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at U-C-H-I-L-R-E-V and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks, and we'll see you again soon for the next episode of Briefly Season 5.